Blog Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the show. It is the Bassett News Radio Show on the Bassett News Radio Network and our sister station, WCOM in Chapel Hill and, of course, WCLM in Richmond, Virginia now. We thank those affiliates for carrying uh, this broadcast. want to go to the phone, bring in my guest. He is the Senior mm-hmm. Policy Program Manager at the Urban Institute. He is Zach Boren, and Mr. Boren, it's a pleasure for you to come on. And listen, I appreciate so much your patience on the line, sir. Hi, L.A. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate being on the show and uh, getting the, a chance to talk to you about, uh, about apprenticeships tonight. Absolutely. So uh, first question to you is, is what is uh, Apprenticeship 2000? Yeah, Apprenticeship 2000, uh, it is a model for developing youth apprenticeships um, in North Carolina. It's an employer consortium model. Um, It was created in 1995 by four employers. Uh, Ameritech Dye and Mold was an American company. Uh, Blum, an an Austrian company. Detweiler, a Swiss company. And Sarstedt, a German company. And what they did together is they transformed from being competitors in business to being collaborators to address talent shortages in the Charlotte area that they're really facing in manufacturing. Uh, For the employers, you know, it's a really great cost-effective model for for recruiting young talent um, into their organizations to become mechatronics techs and uh, CNC operators and dye and mold um, operators as well. It's an enduring talent development strategy that they that they developed, and for the apprentices, it really offers this rigorous, high-quality apprenticeship pathway that starts with uh, education in high school and culminates in receiving uh, a degree, an associate's degree, from a local community college um, in mechatronics and receiving your certificate. Um, showing that you are proficient as a mechatronics tech. It's just a really, really exciting model, an enduring one. It's a, as far as we're concerned, it's the, uh, the longest-lasting youth apprenticeship model that we've found in the United States. So it's a win-win-win for all the partners involved, high schools, employers, colleges, uh, the apprentices, and really the state overall economically uh, benefits from having more people in good jobs. You know, it, one of the things in, in, in reading uh, on this and, and what you're, you're, you just expressed is the fact that, you know, and I think this is uh, through the Department of Labor, um, is that this country kind of gets away or got away from um, apprenticeships, uh, especially in a sense that it is a win-win. Now it seems like corporate America is more about um, – you know that uh that bottom line rather than doing it the way that we grew up where you you learn the trade you learn something a craft in high school you you took on um uh, a uh, apprenticeship at a, uh, a a local company you work your way through up by the time you graduated from college you had a job now it seems like Companies don't want to work together to do that. It seems like we've gotten away from that. And I think economically and, and the country as a whole in terms of how we, we uh, uh, look at labor and look at people who work, who have to do the work. Some people do the grunt work. Some people are, you know, the upper uh, management. 
we've gotten away from that, and I think that's really hurt the country. What's your thoughts? You know, I think uh, apprenticeship is really, you know, we've seen a big downside, especially in the, in the Great Recession for apprenticeships. They slid all the way down to only about 375,000 apprenticeships across the country. And now we're talking about a boom in apprenticeships. What we've seen is um, about a 200% gain um, since the Great Recession wow. in apprenticeships. Um, and we're seeing it all over the country. You know, and not only are we seeing apprenticeships grow in the traditional trades, um, but we're seeing them grow in places that we don't expect them anymore, or we don't expect them to be. So, you know, here at Urban Institute, we are uh, an apprenticeship intermediary. So we're helping companies, uh, you know, like some some big tech firms, like Google, uh, start some of their uh, first, you know, apprenticeship programs they've met, that they previously didn't have um, to do software development, to, to think about how do we train um, our IT specialists. So, you know, what, what we're really looking at is that overall across the country because of the investment that the government is now making an apprenticeship uh it's really a rebirth and and we're excited to be a part of it here at urban we took a look at um apprenticeship 2000 which is an example of this apprenticeship consortia of you know four uh five now six seven eight companies all coming together in the charlotte area that model is now expanded all over the state. So now we're looking at about 25 uh, youth apprenticeship consortia across the state, companies working with other companies to bring young people into these really good jobs like mechatronics, but also in healthcare and IT and in manufacturing. Um, and a lot of the jobs that you know used to require a four-year degree and what companies are saying to us now is we can't really find the talent that we're looking for uh, from some of the community colleges, from some of the four years. What we really need to do now is to grow our own. And I think this is a realization of, of really what's happened in the labor market. We have about 7 million open jobs. Um, even, even despite the pandemic, we have really skilled labor that needs to be filled and companies are are stepping up to the plate with apprenticeship and figuring out how to uh, develop these programs, really develop young people um, into their 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 into their talent pipeline. Mm. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Zach Boren. He's the senior policy program manager at the Urban Institute, talking about apprentice apprenticeships here on the Bachelor News Radio Show on uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network. Is are some of the jobs, some of the apprenticeships um, with some of these companies sort of antiquated, is it based on the, the state, the city, in terms of where you place these young people? I mean, I know manufacturing was, you know, big in Carolina. I don't know, I don't know the numbers, if it's down or up, but, you know, RTP is, is, is grown uh, with tech jobs. You talk about Charlotte. So is, are some of these type of kind of outdated and some of these companies need to redevelop themselves or are you still finding um, places where you could place these young, this young great minds? Oh, really? I mean, I, I find apprenticeship to be more cutting edge and more industry led than anything um, than, than what we see before. We have to see that, 
you know, if you're going to place someone into an apprenticeship, you really have to train them with 21st century skills in, in order to, to stay competitive. We see this, you know, really, you know, not just here in the United States, but with our competitors like Germany and Switzerland and the UK, they are all using apprenticeships to their advantage uh, with some of the biggest corporations um, to stay to stay competitive and to to really um, develop their their talent pipeline for jobs that are really hard to fill. So with Apprenticeship 2000, we're talking about this occupation called mechatronics. So it's really kind of thinking about electronics with mechanical engineering that we're combining into a four-year apprenticeship that really leads up can lead up to an engineering degree. So we're talking about really, really cutting edge um, type, types of occupations where some of the machines they're working on are working on a split of a second to, to create a part. And those workers, these young workers, like we met Jordan um, at, at, uh, at um, Apprenticeship 2000, she is really thinking about how do I um, ensure that the machine I'm working on, this really high-tech machine, is going to turn out a product and a profit for her company called Blum. Um, and they're, you know, they're a multinational company, um, and they're located in the Charlotte area. And we find that across, you know, across North Carolina, we're seeing there are really fewer people working in, in manufacturing, but they're working in higher level higher um, higher skill jobs. And that's why we're really seeing companies turn to apprenticeship is because they need to develop their own because uh, these jobs have become really complicated and the talent that's coming out of the colleges um, is really not meeting the demand that, uh, that they need. So what is the um, apprenticeship uh, consortium how does that differ from other types of uh, apprenticeship programs? Yeah, it, it actually offers a lot of advantages. I mean, most, most folks really think about apprenticeships, they think, you know, possibly union, um, maybe in construction, like, uh, like welders, um, you know, we're going to have, uh, we're going to bring in uh, carpenters, electricians, HVAC techs, plumbers, you know, all these great occupations that, that people do generally in the trades, a lot of times with, with unions, maybe not so much in North Carolina since it's a low union-based state, but, you know, across the Northeast and across the Midwest, um, union apprenticeship is still really strong. Um, and But we're, what we're seeing in North Carolina is something a little bit different where companies are coming together to figure out uh, the skill gap together. And it has a couple advantages. It's first, you know, for a small company, they may only need one or two apprentices. So it's, it's right. you know, can be cost prohibitive to bring in, um, you know, an apprentice. Some apprenticeship programs are spending as much as, um, you know, uh, as much as a, a quarter of a million dollars on training an apprentice. Um, Siemens is a great example of this, who's spending that amount including their wages to really create, um, you know, this really high caliber worker. If you're a small company, you're not going to be able to necessarily be able to front all that cost. So there's really shared resources. They go out and they recruit together. So Apprenticeship 2000 said, we four, five, six small companies, we're going to go out and recruit the best talent from, 
from local high schools. So we're not just being Detweiler and Ameritech die and mold. We're Apprenticeship 2000, and we're creating this really uh, high caliber reputation for our apprenticeship programs. And so they're really, what this consortium model does is it offers them, you know, a collective identity and credibility with the schools. I was going to ask, Sue, what are some of the, the downfalls, well, not downfalls, but uh, some of the, the, the problems some of the programs face or some of the apprentices actually face? My nephew, I'm from Connecticut, you know, he's an electrician. And he was really frustrated. He, I mean, you have to. You got to. You can't uh, wire somebody's house and it burns down. So you have to have those times. It took him three years to get through everything. So do you see any of that frustration? Some of the programs that may have some bumps in the road. Yeah, certainly there are some some challenges in getting you know an apprenticeship program off the road uh, or off the ground. You also um, see where you know not every apprentice you bring on is going to turn out to be you know your professional electrician, your professional software developer. You're going to lose some along the way, and that's that's some of the that cost benefit that that um, is a trade off with doing an apprenticeship program. But overall, we see apprentices doing really well. They're really loyal. Uh, 94% of uh, apprentices who uh, complete a a program are employed and often stay with their company. So there's this real return on investment. Um, We find in a study of South Carolina, uh, the University of South Carolina has found that the return on investment is really high for employers that that start an apprenticeship program. it's a dollar twenty-six for every dollar they invest. But along the way, you know, for for apprentices, you know, there is a challenge. You know, you're going to be starting at a little bit of a lower wage, um, but ultimately, you're going to reach that. You're going to reach middle class wages much faster than you will, um, you know, going for a, a four-year degree. I mean, what we find is that apprentices are actually doing much better economically. They earn about $70,000 on average a year when they complete their apprenticeship program in comparison to their college counterparts who are only earning between fifty and 60000 a year. If you're just joining us, we talk with Zach Boren, a, a senior policy program manager at the Urban Institute here on the Bassett News Radio Show. Zach, I did get some questions, um, and one of which was going to be a question of mine. As a African-American uh, father, with two sons, one says he wants to be a, a, a web developer, but, you know, kids change their minds. The other one's in high school. He really doesn't know. He's athletic. He likes history. So we don't know. But my question is, how much of a reach is the Urban Institute doing with this program and and communities of colors, maybe historically black colleges? I know you mentioned South Carolina. There's South Carolina State there. How much of a reach goes out to those um, that, you know, in, in these urban areas that um, might have some, some young talent that uh, can help some companies? Yeah, um, absolutely right. We are really reaching out to uh, the black community, to, to other communities of color. It's really important that we, um, you know, make sure that apprenticeship works for, for everyone. Um, you know, in particular, we're working with South Carolina State, for example, to, to start one of their first um, apprenticeship programs in tech. So 
I don't want to get ahead too far ahead of their announcement, but you know we're we're excited to work with some of the HBCUs to to really um, engage them in this model that can be so effective for people who who are really looking to get attached to work um, and attached to really good jobs, um, especially in the tech industry. You talk about web developers. We see this as a key place where where a young person, instead of having to go and spend 100 or 200K at, at a college to be able to, to get into that field, they can potentially go do apprenticeship um, and get directly in. So companies like IBM, you know, Microsoft, Google, um, some of the biggest tech firms, um, and even some, some small firms. You know, we were working, um, for example, with a small one-person Black-owned shop in, in Tampa, that, uh, to develop their first apprenticeship program, their first hire was going to be an apprentice. So we think it's it's a, a tremendously good opportunity for for a lot of people to get into a variety of different jobs. And there's about there's about over there's over a thousand occupations to choose from. This is so fascinating. I just got a few more questions. If you if you can hang that, I'd, I'd appreciate that. I know we ran yeah. a little late. Um, the uh, what about the criteria um, for the company to get involved with Apprentice, Apprenticeship 2000 with you guys? Um, and what what do the kids need to do uh, in high school? Or what are you looking for? Or, or do they reach out? How does it actually? How do they actually connect both the kids and the uh, companies? Yeah. So for for companies, it's really about taking a look and seeing what type of talent you have you know, um, in your in your current company and seeing really where it's hard to, to either keep talent um, to retain them into jobs or places where you really have a hard time recruiting um, from from other places. I mean, I'll tell you, a lot of companies are telling me they can't poach talent anymore. They really need to they really need to figure out how to create your own before. If you needed a welder, you could poach it from, you know, down the road. Uh, from from you know local you know another local uh, welding company that's not the case anymore. Um, the talent is really not there, and we need to figure out how to grow it. So, what a lot of companies do is they come to a place like Urban Institute. We help design um, an apprenticeship program for them, um, figuring out what what occupations they really want to design. So we do the on the job training. Um, design with them, and then we connect them with a, with an instruction provider. So that can be um, a local community college, for example, or even a high school. Um, so what we do is basically we design the program, and then we have it recognized by the North Carolina um, Department of Community Colleges that recognizes um, uh, apprenticeships across the state. So there's like 12,000 uh, people who are doing apprenticeships today in North Carolina. Um, and if you're a young person and you're interested uh, in finding out, you know, where, where can I find an apprenticeship, um, there's a great website. It's run by the U.S. Department of Labor. It's called apprenticeship.gov. And you can go to apprenticeship.gov. There's lots of resources. You can see what are the types of jobs that companies are really uh, hiring for today. And then you can actually uh, put in your zip code and find out if there's an apprenticeship near you. Uh, to be able to apply for one, um, and that's one of the best ways to do it. Um, the other way is to call the, the call the North Carolina Department of Community Colleges, 
and find out um, what apprenticeship programs they have all across the state. Get connected to one of those local employers. Wow, that that's that's awesome. Of course, uh, this is this is all a business and personal information for me, uh, and I, and that's why I certainly appreciate this. Two two quick questions. Talk about some of the success stories. I know you mentioned one person, but uh, you can elaborate on that if you will. And you mentioned the pandemic. I, I can't imagine, but you guys have done it. Um, how you maintain your stability in this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that we have? You know, it's certainly been a challenge. Um, I'll start off talking about some of the success stories. One of the success stories is during the pandemic. Um, We met um, Chris Stone. Um, He was uh, a former apprentice we interviewed in the case study. Uh, You can find it on urban.org if you want to take a read of what Apprenticeship 2000 is and jump in a little bit deeper. But he started his apprenticeship program when he was 16, and uh, he had a 4.0 GPA. Felt like college just wasn't right for him. Since then, he's he's graduated. He's employed at Blum in the Charlotte area where he did his apprenticeship. Uh, really, looking back when when he talks to us about his apprenticeship, he feel like feels like he is really further ahead than his peer group. At 16, he was working with colleagues who were in their 40s and 50s. He said he learned so quickly to show them respect and really how to work with older people. And he learned also how to make great presentations and time management. And very importantly, he learned how to talk to customers. So along with some of those technical skills that he learned in becoming a mechatronics tech, Chris also learned that uh, some of those essential soft skills uh, he needed to be successful um, in in a professional setting. Uh, Chris was able to buy his first house Right out, of his, right out of his program, so we're talking about age 21 or 22, he had no college debt and already had four years of paid work under his belt. I'll tell you, I met another, uh, another guy at uh, Meritech Dye and Mold while I was down there in, in, in Mooresville a few years ago, and this young man was age 22, was buying his second house out of debt, no, no college debt whatsoever, and getting married at the same time. I mean, compare that to what a lot of young people are facing after they finish college. They might be on your, they might be on your couch. They might be on grandma's couch. <laughs> they, they may not even be employed. And so this is just such a difference economically on what, what people are able to do. We met a fourth year apprentice during the pandemic that was really able to support uh, his whole family. Uh, his whole family were, were in other industries. Um, they all lost their, their employment, um, and he kept his employment um, as an apprentice uh, with Apprenticeship 2000. Was he really able to support his family uh, through a period of time where they did not have enough money to put food on the table or cover rent? Um, what we find is that apprenticeship is really a more stable field than what most teenagers get into, like hospitality, um, and other low-wage minimum jobs, but these are really higher-level wages and higher-level opportunities that come along with them. You know, the final question for you came from Kim um, in uh, Raleigh, actually, and she asked, what are some of the biggest challenges that uh, Apprentice 2000 um, faced in the beginning and now? Um, and she also asked, uh, was it um, – 
tough to get some of the bigger corporations. I know you mentioned Google and IBM to to kind of sign on and, and get on board with this to 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 forget about the profits, just come together as as companies and 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 do the right thing. Yeah, so apprenticeship 2000. I you know when we talked to we talked to all the managers who are currently leading that that effort. And really the tougher part was really about getting to a collective vision. Um, that was some of the challenge in getting other companies to, to come on. They're really running a, a high quality apprenticeship program. So this is a program that takes four years to get your at the end of the day your professional who completes it. So there's there's some cost that goes along with this. There's you know kind of this long-term vision. And if you're a company that really needs your talent tomorrow, um, you know, apprenticeship 2000, uh, an apprenticeship program isn't going to be able to deliver that in a matter of weeks. It's really thinking about a long-term vision. Where, where do we want to take our company in five years, in 10 years? It's really kind of changing that mindset that a lot of Americans are in, this kind of short-termism of, we need to make profit for next next week or next quarter, next year into we need a strategy for developing our company 10 years from now. And so I think that's really the challenge is kind of changing that mindset of American business to really think about a, a longer term trajectory for where they want to go. Great point. Um, before you go, let people know, I know it's urban.org, but uh, please do give out all the information. I thank you for coming on. This has been uh, worth the time, and certainly I, I'd love to have you back to talk some more about it. But if you can give out your information, that uh, we appreciate it. L.A., I would always be glad to come back and um, come visit. Um, yeah, absolutely. You can come to uh, urban.org or urban.org backslash YA uh, for youth apprenticeship. Um, that's our youth apprenticeship website, and you can come find all the su success stories from our apprentices and from our companies there, and feel free to hit me up on Twitter. And what's your Twitter handle? I'm Zach underscore Boren. Okay. Zach, uh, listen, I appreciate the time. Like I said, this was information for um, our audience. Uh, there are a lot of parents out there and and you know with everything has been going on in the climate and worrying about this talent and this talent you know young minds still trying to figure things out this is definitely a great thing is very refreshing very informative and i think like you said in the beginning of this interview it's a win-win-win i mean everybody wins with this apprenticeship and, and i thank you so much i'll, I'll, I'll reschedule with you again and you be well. Thanks a lot. Thanks, LA. Appreciate it.
telling each other was the one We would make love at the drop of a hat Remember that? Yeah I remember you and me Closest in it too We try to make it better here for you. We thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, 646-929-0130, the number to, to get in touch with us. The chat room is open. And you can listen at our website, uh, thebachelornews.airtime.pro, thebachelornews.airtime.pro, the Bachelor uh, News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM, IBM TV, and the Big Mind Entertainment. Let's go to my guest. Always good to have him on at the Insight. Uh, no other, uh, not too many people I can think of that knows is locked into HBCU sports and news. And he is a author and historian. And Fred Wooden. Fred, always a pleasure to have you on, my friend. Uh, it's great to be on. Yeah, and we're going to get busy, so I'll be seeing, you'll be seeing my ugly mug in a lot of the same places so soon, football, basketball, of course, as we hopefully uh, graduate in some ways from um, uh, COVID-19. Fred, I wanted to have you on because of when you look at um, 
and I call it a phenomenon, maybe that's not the right term, but uh, in recent months, years, even a, a, a few years now, uh, we've seen uh, mainstream business, corporate, if you will, partner with a lot of the HBCUs. I, I mean, uh, I, I know that uh, Jeff Bezos' uh, ex-wife, uh, Mackenzie Scott, just gave a ton of money to Howard, Xavier, uh, Hampton, Morehouse, Spellman, Tuskegee, and it was one other that I can't think of now. I mean, $1.7 billion of her money that she got in the divorce with, with Jeff. Of course, Jeff Bezos, the, uh, uh, the owner of Amazon. Um, and you look at that and you look at some of the stars, if you will, uh, that have graduated and signed on the line. If it's not Deion Sanders, it's, uh, you know, someone at a lesser degree that will uh, come in and to, to, to play as a coach or administration a person or both with HBCU. So what, what do you make of this? this trend that we're seeing and why? Uh, Well, I don't make a big deal out of it. Uh, My question is, where have they been? Uh, When you look at our culture, look at our, 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 our years over the years and say, okay, um, we've had HBCU since 1837 uh, we have a bunch since 1865. Uh, it's almost as if they all of a sudden discovered, hey, there are these schools out here that uh, are, are situated in a place so they can help black folks who can't go to Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, Florida State, uh, UNC, North Carolina, in uh, my question is, again, if it took George Floyd for you to recognize that these schools existed, uh, you got to, you know, those who, who, who didn't get it before then uh, have a deeper problem than they can imagine, than they're imagining. And, it, you you know, and, and, and someone said Reggie Theus to a lesser degree, you know, obviously he didn't have the career of a um, – of Deion Sanders, but Reggie Diaz did play a long time in the NBA, and of course now uh, he's at an HBCU, uh, an HBCU that's moved on from the MEAC to the SWAC. Um, but it, you know, I would think, and I'm making a comment. You can comment on this, Fred. That to your point, that they're always been there, and you have so much talent, especially. Um, uh, you know, if they're going to go to the NFL or other places uh, that is there, that these businesses would market it. So it, it's sad that if it took George Floyd for people to say, oh, wow, these people not only exist, but they're they're part of the, the fabric of the country in terms of business, then, you know, why not? invest in these communities? Why not invest into these historically black colleges and universities to to build your portfolio to 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 um as you say, as we say, you know, to meet your quotas and to make a dollar off the market. Well okay, let's clear the air first of all. There have been those who have been extremely generous over the years because I know when I first went to Winston Salem State 
back in the 70s, early 70s, um, we had these things called rental scholars who were provided full rides at uh, Winston-Salem State by uh, rentals, uh, RJ Rentals Tobacco Company and the rentals, uh, KB Rentals, and there's like three different foundations that poured money into this. So Winston has had a great relationship with uh, corporate America along with several other companies. And a lot of those schools, a lot of schools out there and a lot of businesses have been doing their due uh, at, at least they were they have been they have at least been doing going through the motions shall we say although some of them may or may you know in, in varying degrees may have or may or may not have done what they could have done or should have done at the same time though there are those who did nothing uh, and uh, I'm old enough to remember when there was no such thing as Nike um, when I came through school, you had a choice of Jeepers or the, the, the sneakers like uh, the uh, vice president wears. Uh, you had Pro Kids. You had Puma, uh, Converse All-Stars, Puma, and Adidas. Adidas was, a, was, was real young at the time. Uh, I think Adidas had, had only been out a few years. So, you know, you had those, but you didn't have these packages like you do now where, say, a school like North Carolina has furnished, has furnished uh, uh, a uh, uniform for all their players. You know, you get a home uniform, a visiting uniform, uh, two or three visiting uniforms. All those things were going on back then. You didn't, you didn't, you, you know, and now uh, they have these things called coaching, shoe coaches shoe contracts, uh, which pay more in some cases to some, some to some coaches than they do than the, than the coach makes as his um, as his salary from the school, and they may have you know shoe contract, you got a uh, uh, apparel contract and all these kind of things out there that did not exist back then. But at the same time, though, these, these companies were making money off of these schools, off of these schools because I know most of our stuff was Adidas or Converse, and Converse was doing great part because Converse was one of the first major um, corporations to buy into supplying gear to uh, HBCUs. And that was due directly to uh, Coach John McClendon, who was one of their rep- one of their major representatives. You know, um, we're talking with Fred Witted here on the Bassey News Radio Show on the Bassey News Radio Network, WCOM, IBM TV, Big Mind Entertainment, and and Streamyard. Um, Fred, what do you say to people? And, and quite honestly, I don't know exactly what camp you would be in in this this question, but what do you say to people who say that the corporate money is not worth it because of the exploitation that goes with it? Uh, this particular person that, that uh, chatted with me said, you know, you look at black exploitation films, although it put a Richard Roundtree or someone like that on the map, they never really made the insurgence or indent, if you will, into mainstream uh, film. So with that being said, they're comparing it to that, that you, know, you take this corporate money from these 
these mainstream, uh, albeit, I mean, quite frankly, white institutions, the Jeff Bezos, the Amazons, you take that money that you're selling yourself out, and maybe there's some agenda ahead of it. So maybe the headache and the reward, if you will, is not really worth it. Well, it, it, it kind of goes both ways. Uh, you have to have people with money who can supply what you need as far as finance, financing goes. Um, but at the same time, though, we as we as a as a as a, as, a as, as a race have to do a better job of building our own business networks because I can remember, you know, we had kind of reunion this past weekend. We were talking about the different, the older heads were telling the younger heads, okay, these are the things that we had in our community. Uh, we lived, uh, we, my, my family owned 140-plus acres of land. Um, several of my uncles owned 25, 30. My father, because, because of several things, mostly my mother, went out and got additional acreage after his, his father gave them, each of his boys that were farming, 10 acres. He parlayed 10 to 140-plus. Those are the kind of things you got to do. Did he do it perfectly? No, but he did it. He found a way to do it. And we have to be cognizant of the fact that, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, one of the things that was discovered after uh, the integration of baseball, who did it, who, who really benefited from Major League Baseball being uh, integrated? The white, the, the major leagues, eventually killed the uh, the uh, Negro League to a point where they barely recognize today that the Negro League even existed other than a museum. And I, because I still have a problem with uh, the uh, major league because of the, the, the Hall of Fame, because nobody was more pro baseball than Buck O'Neill, and they screwed him to a point that. They took him into the Hall of Fame after he was dead, and he was no better 20 years ago than he was the day he died. So why wasn't he in there already? You see, those are the kind of things where we have to be more forceful with the people who are out there talking about how, how you know, who are trying to demonstrate how great they are to us now. Well, okay, let's see this greatness play out a little differently than the way it's being played out. That's such a great point. Um, and, you know, with with that, um, Buck O'Neill, like Henry Hank Aaron, um, was an ambassador of the game. And they, and they suffered in different ways the most of, of a lot of different black ball players and baseball. So my question to you is, um, when you look at for every great, and I so wanted him to win the title, and uh, Chris Paul, who understood, look, I went to Wake Forest, but guess what? I understand these HBCUs. Not only I don't understand, not only I understand it, I'm going back to get a degree at an HBCU once it's on state. What What's the difference between for every Chris Paul, you have a Stephen A., that to me, in my opinion, uh, again, one of your alum, that doesn't highlight 
the HBCUs that's in the trenches, that's in the mainstream, that has the voice, that has the influence, that's not um, really creating this give back, this understanding like Chris Paul, that these these institutions exist for a reason and they're there and they're, they're, they need to thrive in terms of his, his history for America, history for all of us that look like us. So uh, what do you say to those who are not doing their part, who fit in the mainstream, whether they be athletes like Chris Paul doing it his way or the lack thereof of a voice of a Stephen A. Smith? Well, Stephen A. is probably doing a lot more than you think he's doing. Uh, because we have scholarship, a scholarship at uh, Winston-Salem State in his honor that he, he financed two or three years ago. And you also have to look at what is he paid to do, okay? Uh, I know he claims to be a journalist and all this other stuff. So do most of these other people who are on shows, on his show and shows like his. They're not journalists. They are talking heads, and they are paid to basically do what they do, whatever that is. Uh, I'm not always sure, and I'm not always sure that they're sure what they're, they're, they're supposed to be doing. But Because a lot of what they say and what they do means more than it should, but if you don't take time to read yourself, you, you, you know, you, you're going to follow them down the Primrose um, path and be as out there as they are, and you'd be almost like some of the people that are following the president. Having said that, there are a lot of people out there who are doing the kinds of things that they are able to do. And, I, you know, like I said, you know, if you follow Stephen A. closely, you'll find that he talks a lot about HBCUs, most especially the one where he graduated from. And you've got to understand also what his journey was. I mean, Stephen A., he tells you, he'll tell you that yeah, I was on the team at Winston-Salem State. He hardly played because he had bad knees. But because of the coach he played under, who he reveres to this day, and if you want to, if you want to hit him, hit him in the knees and get him to climb, get him to talk about Coach Gaines. Because if you do, you'll find that oh, he's really attached. But that's not what he's paid to do. And I, you know, I get that. Um, with all due respect to you. Um, and I understand there's talking points, but, you know, if if that clown Charles Barkley can talk about there's no racism and use his platform uh, for the bad, I, I would like to see a Stephen A. Smith um, speak more openly, openly, not private, because Oprah does stuff private. Michael Jordan does stuff private. A lot of people do stuff private. Um, it goes a long way for me um, if you say some stuff in the open areas. Cause I respect, I respect a, a Fred Whitted who can, can be critical of his people and yet still be for his people than not just always have to do it behind closed doors. That's just, that's all I'm really, really saying in, in that regard um, to him. Um, it, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming more to the surface um, than it used to be. Um, right. And, and see, uh, their time, I mean, and, and see, quiet as it's kept, Charles Barkley has, has made several major contributions to uh, HBCU. And 
you see, and looking at Chris Paul, you know, I was in school with some of his family members. So, uh, mm. I mean, they were, they were, I think it was an aunt and an uncle were there during the time I was there. And so, and see, when you look at him, now he, I don't hear him mention Coach Keynes a whole lot, but I do know he had a, he had an open door. He, like several other guys, had an open door to Coach Keynes to talk about basketball and to talk about life. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and that's that's so important. Um, when you look at one of the age-old complaints, and and we've talked about this, Fred, over the years, we've had you on even off the air um, about the management of the money, the management uh, when the endowment money is there or not there, the management of the athletic department, making sure you're in compliance, making sure you have those things. How much of that still plays a role in uh, the negative aspects of, you know, the, the HBCU experience and the fact that, you know, you know, keeping keeping the doors open, uh, making sure that these HBCU thrive. And obviously, you might have an AAT that might be better than someone else, or Howard better than someone else. Um, so, uh, how much of that still plays into it? Well, big picture, it's still there. Uh, you have to consider this, uh, and I'll use again University of North Carolina. You know, when all this stuff hit the fan a few weeks ago pertaining to uh, uh, the young lady coming there as a as an instructor in her tenure. Okay, supposedly she came with a package of, say, $20 million in gifts and donations, et cetera, et cetera to support her position there at University of North Carolina. Well, cool. And it was from about four or five different foundations and, and, and contributors. There was this guy who is a graduate of the University of North Carolina who also uh, questioned her viability as, or, or her yeah, her viability as a as an instructor based on what he perceived to be a negative uh, to her being there as a teacher, not you know as if that had never happened before. Well, he had given somewhere between twenty and twenty five million, although he claims he had he he made no effort to bar her. Strangely, she was barred. So that's the difference. He has 20 to 25, and she comes with 20. Okay, she takes her 20 to um, to Howard. And Coach is there with whatever package he has. They will do more for Howard in, than they would have done for black folks at University of North Carolina. Well, why would you say that? Because have you looked at the University of North Carolina's uh, uh, journalism school? Uh, you can usually count the blacks in, in, the, in the graduate studies or even into the in the um, in the uh, in, in, even in the undergraduate studies. There's not that many of, of us in there. So she will do both. Each of them singularly will do more for our community at Howard than they would ever do had they had he stayed at New York. I think he's at New York University, and she was going to be at University of North Carolina. Right. Well, I mean, you know, 
neither one of them coached basketball, and very few of the people that they were bringing in would play basketball, so it wouldn't be that much exposure of the money side of it to blacks anyway. Yeah, and it's it's funny and ironic that you mentioned um, Howard and and that um, someone that uh, texted me and said that you know Mackenzie Scott, who's the uh, who was the wife of uh, Bezos, who um, owns Amazon, was a pupil under Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison, of course, attended Howard University, so uh, she gave the most uh, of the six schools, the forty million. Um, to Howard, it, interesting to to see how this works, and and I I, I want to make sure because people have been emailing uh, things about what you said, uh, Fred. The fact that we can't let administrations off the off the hook if they misuse or miss um, appropriate uh, funds, whatever those funds are. That we're not saying that, but certainly. Um, there's some, some other factors, Fred, that go into it. Well, the, the, you know, our schools are, you know, think about it this way. We have schools, we have HBCUs with departments and department heads, and department head is usually department feet also. Whereas at the University of North Carolina, I, I did a project some years ago, and I had to get a, get a picture from the SID. Well, the SID... Um, that I called who was, who was in charge worked with basketball, men's basketball, who had a staff for men's basketball. He did. He had nothing to do with women's basketball other than the young lady who was in charge of women's basketball with her staff at that time, I think, of two or three people, which is bigger than most HBCU SID offices, as you well know. And so many, when you look at a school that has 3,000 students or less, versus a, a school with 25,000 or more, they have the wherewithal to have the manpower to do the things that you want done. And you have a staff. You don't have a person who does it all. And see, as you well know, at an HBCU, if you are the football SID, you're also the basketball SID, Oh, by the way, you're also the track and field, cross country, men and women. Uh, oh, you got volleyball, you know, and right on down the line. And because of that, you got you got people that just are grossly overworked. There, I mean, at, at UNC you have a hundred, roughly a hundred football players. At Winston Salem, you got eighty to eighty-five or ninety. That's not that much difference. And you got a person versus a staff. It's easy to get caught up in this. In this, you go back and check. Most of the time, when you have these problems at these HBCUs, it's usually because it, there is a lack of manpower. You're, you're absolutely right, and, and I could think of some uh, SIDs off the top of my head, um, Fred, uh, that are definitely overwhelmed and underpaid. And and still doing it somehow they doing it with a a bag of pork rinds and some tape I guess at this point Fred before you go let people know the project you're working on and projects that they can they can get involved I know you write you've written so many so many um, best selling books but uh, tell us what's going on right now well 
the immediate book that, that they should be interested in is the Sports Encyclopedia um, with HBCU, um, HBCU football. It's, um, it's, on, it's on available online. Also, I'm finishing up um, putting pictures actually into the um, HBCU um, sports, um, Black College Sports Encyclopedia on women's basketball. And we will be starting men's basketball shortly. But and then, but you can go to um, blackheritagereview.com. Also, we're online on um, Facebook, blackheritagereview.com, as well as HBCU Heritage Center. We're developing a facility, working on developing a facility that will house the history of HBCUs and HBCU um, history, sports, as well as alumni and administration. I started right this interview. We, right now, we, yeah, right now we actually putting up. We'll be putting up some information in, in the next couple of hours. Some more information on um, blacks in the Olympics because. They, there was a big deal made of the fact that oh, A&T has four has, has four uh, athletes in the um, Olympics, as if that was new. Where do they? Th- where do you think Bob Hayes came from? Right. Someone Some mainstream blogger woke up and said, "Oh my God, these black colleges are in the Olympics." You're right. Like, where you been? Um, welcome to the party. Auntie's been doing this forever in a day, um, and you know, for those who jump on board now, they've been under a rock or they've been somewhere else. Fred, as always, as I start this interview, you're the best of the best, man. I appreciate you. I'll be in touch, and you be well, sir. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, Fred Woodett, uh, HBCU historian and author, uh, Black Heritage uh, Review. Many books this man has written. Um, you really need to, to go to the site and um, check out the book. It's very informative. If you don't know anything about historically black colleges and universities, you can with Fred Woodard. It's the Bassett News Radio Show. Stay tuned. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited.
Welcome back to the show. We thank you for joining us here on the Bass News Radio Show on the Bass News Radio Network, WCOM, Chapel Hill, uh, IBM TV, the Bass News Radio Network, and uh, Big Mind Entertainment. Uh, we go back to the phones, bring in our guests. Always good to have him on AFC South Roundup, uh, SportsAwakening.com, Nashville Voice, and everything else under the sun. He is the General Mike Patton. And, Mike, always a pleasure to have you on, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it's uh, touring the AFC South, actually. Touring the AFC South. I do apologize for that. Um, and, by the way, uh, big ups on that, that interview with Warren Moon. Superb stuff, sir. Uh, definitely well, I, superb I got, stuff. I, I got more coming uh, next week. Okay. Okay. And we'll, we're going to definitely talk about where they can see and, and listen and watch tour in the uh, AFC South. Uh, Mike, you know, we had talked about um, Giannis uh, getting it done. I know you had picked him in, in some way of, of – you know, being a, a team that can get to the finals, I needed him to prove that he can get to the finals. And, boy, did he not prove that. He also proved the fact that, you know, he can be big and tall uh, in the midst of, of the time where the Bucks needed him. 50 points, 14 rebounds, five blocks in that final game. Only he and Shaq have done the 40-10 thing in the finals, I believe. Um were you surprised uh, the way the game and the, the rest of the series went after game uh, four? We know statistically if the team that wins game five typically goes on to win the series. But were you surprised the way it went down? A lot of people were very critical of Chris Paul. I thought that was very um, unfair uh, in his case. But, but assess the way the Bucks took over you know, those last four games, essentially, because they won four in a row. Well, the way they did that is uh, one thing they quit doing is they quit switching as much. They kept um, Drew Holiday on Chris Paul a lot and had him picking him up full court. So that took the Suns out of their rhythm a little bit offensively. Um, also, another thing is uh, Aiton, DeAndre Aiton wasn't as good for them after game two. Uh, for some reason, he was missing chippies. He just wasn't quite involved. And I think a lot of that has to be um, that he had to guard uh, Giannis because, you I mean, they, they couldn't put Jay Crowder on him. So, you know, that, that you know, those two factors, I think, were, were really, really big. Chris Paul, he did have a couple games that kind of, you know, made you scratch your head. But I will say this, Devin Booker had a couple games that made you scratch your head, too, in the series. But literally no one really talked about it. They just kind of glossed over it. Yeah, and I think that's unfair because Devin Booker, you're right. I was going to go there. The fact is that he he had some really bad shooting games and defensively some breakdowns. Uh, and, I mean, game six, what was he, nine for 22 or whatever it was? Um, in that game, he seemed a bit, a bit lost and a little shell-shocked. Um and not to make an excuse for him, but, you know, they're young kids and they'll hopefully be back there with the exception of Chris Paul. But I, I just thought that, and I don't know if you you feel the same way, that Phoenix didn't lose the series per se. Milwaukee took it after a while. I would say that definitely, um, you know, funny funny thing is, 
everyone talks about Coach Bud and not making adjustments, which he's been known to be stubborn. But in this series, he made the correct adjustments to put them in position to win games. He put Chris Middleton at the point spot to initiate the offense a little bit more, uh, which kind of made Drew, gave Drew a little bit of a, a break of, you know, kind of running the offense and allowed him to be aggressive a little bit more offensively uh, off the ball. He um, he went with Bobby Portis a little bit more than he would usually did down, you know, the last four games. And he just uh, he took Forbes out the lineup, too, and, and put Connaughton in that spot. That was a huge, huge change because Connaughton had a huge effect on this series. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, Phoenix played hard, but Milwaukee made the correct adjustments, and they just couldn't do anything with that link and all of them attacking the basket because – I mean, honestly, Phoenix is a short team after you get past DeAndre Ayton. And to your point, if you can elaborate on it with this coach from Milwaukee and the the, the fact is his M.O. was that he doesn't make the adjustments. He, he wants to stick with his, his way of thing and his rotation and not changing things, but he did. Also, I thought one part of Milwaukee's team underrated uh, was their bench because everybody talked about how deep Phoenix was, and you know they can they have interchangeable parts. Like you said, of course, obviously outside of Aiden, they're small, but they they had guys that can come on there and give them ten points, you know, eight rebounds at one t- point. But Milwaukee actually their bench played well as uh, as well in the series, Mike. Yes, uh, a big loss not to be uh, not glossed over was Dario Saric for the Phoenix Suns, too. He was playing the backup center, and he took some of the height away when, of course, he went out with a ACL tear and more than likely is going to miss the start of next year as well. But that was huge uh, for them. But <clears throat> as far as Phoenix, you know, Phoenix, they did have Cam Johnson and Saric coming in off the bench, and those two were, were doing their thing and making things happen. And, and of course, campaign. But campaign wasn't necessarily the lightning rod he was in the other series consistently. And Pat Connaughton was huge, and Bobby Portis were he, were, was huge as well for them. Those two players right there really evened up the score for the uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, in terms of uh, bench production versus the Phoenix Suns. You're just joining us to talk with Mike Patton here on the Bassin News Radio Show on the Bassin News Radio Network, WCOM in Chapel Hill, IBM TV, Big Mind Entertainment, WCLL in, in Richmond, Virginia as well. Mike, uh, you know, that game six, it wasn't a game seven. This wasn't Willis Reed limping on the court for the Knicks against the Lakers in game seven um, uh, uh, at all. But when you look at closing a series, and you don't have to be. You're younger than I, but you you're a student of the the understanding of the game. You know the history. You look at Magic's 42 against my Sixers, and 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 you look at uh, you know what Jordan did, you know against Utah, and at 45, I think he scored in that epic game there. Where do you place Giannis' game? The way that they had the lead, they blew the lead. And he just kind of willed them through, not just through the scoring, but the block shots and the physicality of it. Where do you put his performance in game six uh, in in the history books? It's definitely got to be up there in the top five. I mean, honestly, I mean, you had Magic playing center. You've had, uh, 
I mean, plenty of other different things that have happened over time. But, you know, if, if you want to be a uh, – people are going to call me a prisoner of the moment, things like that, which it is what it is. But I think that was definitely one of the most dominant performances in a closeout game that I've seen. Definitely was. I, I put that in the top five pretty easy. I mean, honestly, look at his game. He did not really shoot a three. He was in the paint doing whatever he wanted to, dunking, blocking shots, uh, throwing assists. He pretty much spent every last bit of energy to bring that championship home in game six. And, you know, that that definitely was a performance that you will definitely not forget. And you think about it, he was 17 for 19 from the, floor, from the, uh, the, the free throw line. I mean, a guy has been struggling just not just the regular season, but the playoffs. And he even in, at, at that point of his game, he was seventeen and nineteen. He hadn't done that for a long time. It probably all season. It, 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 those kind of numbers at the line. So I mean, really, people want to kind of poo-poo it. Well, oh, it was game six. It could have went back to. It didn't because he didn't want it to happen. He made sure that it was going to end in front of those, those fans in Milwaukee. So I'm with you. Top five, definitely. Definitely top five. You could debate whatever, but definitely the top five. So when you look, Mike, at this Bucks team, and a lot has been said about him staying in Milwaukee, the small small market, doing the right thing. He could have went anywhere, but he stayed there. And he even said that. And you look at their roster coming back, and Phoenix, who has a better chance to get back to the finals and and why? I would say that the Milwaukee Bucks have a better chance. Um, and I'll give you the why. I mean, if you look at the East, you know, you have Brooklyn. You have Philadelphia potentially again. Um, I mean, you have a few teams there, but do you have a team that you be like, okay, that's going to be the best team? Besides Brooklyn, you really it's really all up for grabs. You go to the West, you've got Kawhi. You know, I would say mm, you might have Kawhi coming back for the for the Clippers next year towards the end of the season, I should say. Um, you'll definitely have the Lakers being at full strength. You'll have the um, the Nuggets. I mean, you can go up and down the line of the teams in the West, and I don't think Phoenix is going to have. Uh, I, I think Phoenix is going to come down a little bit next year. And also, uh, the West will be better and, and, and more than likely healthier, too. So that's where I, I think Phoenix will have a tougher time in Milwaukee of getting back to the finals. And when you when you look at Phoenix, the rumors already thrown around about Chris Paul and his staying or going. And I don't know the contractual. I'm sure you know better than I. In, in terms of that. So, so, but yeah, I, I, I would love to, 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 to have it, but you know, aside from that, is he? Do you see him wanting to stay? I know, I, I think his his family's still in L.A. His kids and everything going to school there, so maybe, maybe he wants to go to an L.A. team. Maybe he stays in Phoenix, just flies back and forth. What do you, you know? The Knicks, they're all you know, Knicks fans and all this stuff on the East Coast. They're talking that crap about he's coming there and he wants to be there. Where do you see him being at the end of the day? I'll say this: when it comes to uh, Chris Paul. Uh, there is some talk out there about him wanting to go to play for the Knicks. The connection there, Leon Rose, that's the connection. So that's where 
that talk comes from. It potentially could happen, potentially. Uh, but, you know, honestly, it'd be a lot for him to walk away from $44.2 million in an option next year. Yes, I said $44.2 million. So, yeah, it'd be a lot for him to walk away from that. And, uh, you know, as far as the L.A. rumors, of course, you know, he's a godson to uh, LeBron's youngest son. So it would it surprise me if he decided he wanted to go play for the Lakers. No, that wouldn't surprise me either. And that would actually be a gift for the Lakers if that happened. You know, Chris Paul, everybody's been sort of, and I'm I'm reaching a little bit, been talking about him. Obviously, he doesn't have the championships, but talking about, okay, next year you figure he's going to drop off. Tom Brady. They've been saying that, okay, Tom Brady, next year he's, it, it's got to be the year he's going to decline. It's not going to happen. And he just won a Super Bowl. And, and Paul played at an elite level uh, all year and for the most part in the, in the playoffs. He goes to – if he goes to L.A. or the Knicks or stays in Phoenix, what, what team, let's just say those three, what team would he go to that you think he would impact – the most. Let's just say those three uh, franchises. Hmm. Well, let's say you said. Well, Phoenix, I mean, he's already in Phoenix, Phoenix and, a, and a ton of money, like you said. So he's there right now. So there, the Lakers or the Knicks. Hmm. Well, Phoenix, we already seen his impact, and I don't see their season getting much higher than what it currently is right now. Um, as far as the Knicks. They already kind of have a Derrick Rose situation. They have to get him paid. They're probably going to bring him back. And, you know, you have Emmanuel quickly there too. So do I think uh, he could have a huge impact there? Yes. Um, you know, between the Lakers and between the Lakers and the Knicks, hmm. honestly, I'd, I think he'd have a better impact on the Knicks than he would the Lakers, to be honest. The ball would be in his hands. He has talent around him there. He can make Julius Randle even better and make his life even more easy. But the You're thing right. is, they need a they need a wing scorer though. They need a wing, a three and D guy. That's the one thing that the Knicks are missing. I like R.J. Barrett; he's solid. Uh, Julius Randle, solid. But you need a three and D guy that can actually go get go get buckets. Like if they could trade for a T.J. Warren from the Indianapolis uh, Pacers, they would be ready but they just don't have that guy. Yeah, you're right. I I agree with you. I mean, he's going to command the respect in the locker room. He's going to command the ball. Um, Randall in the post and and, and pick and rolls, you can see all of those screens. You can see all that kind of play coming out with with him as opposed to LeBron – it, you know, beat up LeBron and, and AD still made the playoffs and with a few other things that could have went deeper. So, you know, I think I'm, I'm with you. I think he would he would help the, the Knicks immensely. That just gives him mad credibility if he goes um, to the Knicks. One other thought, too. I had a conversation with a friend of mine, a colleague who's a, re, a writer like yourself, um, that said that, you know, the NBA, he wonders what the numbers are uh, in terms of the ratings of these two small market teams playing in the finals. And my thing is, I think the NBA, this is a win-win for them. Because you and I already talked even before and during 
the playoffs about the storylines. Chris Paul finally gets there, and, you know, can he win a title? Can uh, Giannis get his off his back? The Milwaukee hadn't won in a long time. Phoenix hadn't even been to the finals since Barkley. All these different things. So ratings aside, do, do you think that this was a good storyline overall for the NBA? Yeah, we didn't have the big market change, but guess what? Even in the small markets, we still – can promote the hell out of this thing and have some great storylines. Well, I definitely think it was a good thing for the NBA. Uh, I mean, you do have storylines that can be great, created with any team in the NBA. Uh, that's what marketing marketing people get their, their money for. So I would definitely uh, say that it, it definitely was a very interesting and a very good uh, NBA finals. Um, the small market teams, I know that, that people like to talk about that, but the thing is if a small market team is entertaining, people will watch. So that's not necessarily a small market team. It's a small market team that's not entertaining. That's when people don't watch games. So, I mean, I like it, and it created a uh, a different buzz around the NBA. Of course, it's like Giannis. I mean, Giannis now is like the big fish in the small pond that has the championship, kind of like a certain – some guy, a certain guy that came home and won a championship in a certain town where nobody thought he would ever win a title. Not necessarily exactly. from there, of course, but uh, Giannis is not necessarily from Milwaukee, but it feels like he grew up there in the eight years he's been there. Absolutely. Um, two other questions for you, Mike, and I appreciate you staying on as long as you have. You still there? Uh, when you look at the NBA and that you look at the uh, number of black coaches being, uh, you know, uh, hired, the NBA, which has always been at the forefront in terms of minority hiring and at the coaches' levels, at least, at the very least, uh, has always been at the forefront that they have more. What does that say about the NBA? Does that say that um, they're reaching a level where they don't want to bring in more black executives? I know the sister girl was a minority owner with the Bucks. She just won a championship, you know, and she she's a fee, black female. Uh, that's the executive level. But are we saying that maybe we're reaching our plateau as coaches and black coaches, and maybe we're going to see even more in terms of executives and ownerships, or we're just saying that, you know, the NBA kind of gets it in terms of the, you know, policing their own, if you will, you know, managing their own people that look like them, they're going to put those people in place, the overseers, and some people say, uh, in that regard. I think the NBA just gets it. They get it a lot more than any other league that's out there in this aspect. I mean, they look at can you coach? Can you coach? Um, Now, I do say this, though. The one thing that does irritate me about the NBA as does things in, in college football and college basketball and the in, in NFL as well. And coaches, black coaches tend to always get fired. And let me tell you where I'm going with this. You see black coaches get fired, but when you see white coaches leave or or when they're they you know they they they're not going to be around the franchise, 
they always get a mutual parting away. So they make it sound so nice when they get fired. Now, when the NBA reaches that point consistently, where both of them can get fired or both of them can have a mutual parting away more, then I'll be like, okay, cool. I mean, you got Steve Clifford out here getting mutual parting away. You got Scott Brooks getting mutual parting away. And we know they got fired. So is this really, is it more on media? Is it more on the organizations to want to pronounce it this way? Or, or, or what, what is it, really is it? Yeah, you know, I didn't even think about it like that. I mean, really, <clears throat> the parting of ways, I mean, that's a whole different thought process and, and discussion uh, when you think about that. So, um, and, and I've mentioned this to several colleagues that, yeah, I mean, the NBA is just, you know, it's it's like turning the light on and riding a bike. Yeah, we, we've been hiring black coaches forever. So that, but okay, so where are we going after that? And how are we doing this? And how and how many of the Mo Cheeks who hasn't been in a in a coaching spot in a minute, or Nate McMillan who finally got another shot in Atlanta? How many of those second and third chances are we going to get at that level? So that, to your point, um, a Bill Musselman can come out of retirement and probably be a coach somewhere now, and he hadn't coached in the league and and God knows how long. So that's a great point, Mike, uh, that, that people need to ponder and think about when it comes to the, the, the coaching and the coaching tree, too. Um, final question goes to Maria Taylor, the situation with uh, at ESPN. We have a Rachel Nichols who's saying basically, you know, she took my job and I'm entitled to it because based on – the color of my skin, not my sex, because we're just both females, but basically on the color of my skin. Tail leaves, um, I guess, and, and the reports say that they couldn't come to an agreement, um, but she leaves to go on to the green and pastures. It, and, and obviously, Mike Patton, L.A., whoever, um, has the right, based on their situation, their family, to, to make those decisions where they want to stay or go or whatever, but had she stayed, would that have been more of a statement, more of a uh, a voice to uh, sort of soften the wombs of some uh, of, of of some people, some black women and men that may come into those situations and won't have to deal with such uh, type venom and and the practices that according and reportedly of ESPN and what they do and don't do. Would it be it had better for her to stay um, to help internally or go making a statement uh, moving forward? I'll tell you this. Um, a lot of people will say that it, it may be better. For, it would have been better for her to stay and make a statement and things like that. But the reality is that, you know, black people in media, we get told a lot. <clears throat> or I'm just saying we as in media, black media as a, as a whole, and we get positions or things like that because, oh, we've got to have a black eye. We've got to have this. We've got to have that. And black women have it worse, have it the worst of probably anybody. They do. That's why you see so many black women in media sticking together, rooting for each other, cheering for each other, because they know behind the camera, behind the scenes, it's rough. So I don't think – if she would have stayed, anything would have, I mean, either every place she goes, unfortunately she's going to have to deal with 
people slighting her because she's a black woman that covers sports. I mean, you, you can you can talk to a Jamel Hill. You can talk to, I mean, anybody, any of the friends I have in the black women in media, and they can all give you a story about how they were slighted because they were black women in media. So anywhere you go, you can't avoid that. It's just um, it's an unfortunate reality for black women in media. And I, I think what's unfortunate overall is that, um, you know, had Rachel kind of handled it, it uh, more appropriately, is that the at the end of the day, you know, she's still she, she's still at the bottom of the totem pole too. I mean, there's still a men-driven society. Um, so, right. and she handled it better. It'd have been better for her and. Ms. Taylor, um, but you know that's the the, the situation that that took place, um, and it's unfortunate. But you know that's where it is right now. Uh, Mike, before you go, let people know how to follow you. And I know uh, again, big ups the the award winning interview with, um, in my opinion, with Warren Moon. Um, tell us what what else you got going on, sir. Well, you can uh, find me on uh, Twitter at MikePadden82. Uh, my show touring ASC South airs every Thursday. You can, well, the podcast comes out every Thursday. Um, let's see. As far as the uh, – oh, yeah, the, this past episode we did have uh, – see, we had ESPN podcast producer for uh, Around the Rim with China Robinson. We had Tariqa Foster-Bradby on this week as well as uh, Chris Lewis II of the uh, Drop Balls podcast. So we've had uh, a couple few guests, and trust me, in the next couple weeks, we're going to have some more good guests. So definitely stay tuned in. Also, if you're on YouTube, go look up Touring the AFC South. I do also um, do video for these interviews as well, so you can actually see and hear these actual interviews as well. Right. And and that's that's what I was going to point out that you can actually see Mike, um, and and see the guest. And if you go to the YouTube and watch the Warren Moon, you can see him and 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 Warren Moon, the the Hall of Famer, um, up there talking talking about uh, quarterbacks, talking about the AFC South. And and, and again, Mike, I'm not just saying that. I I, I watched it and uh, was very impressed. Not that that means anything to you, but it really was a good job. And, and I appreciate you. Next week, what I want to do, since training camps are opening and uh, around, I, I want to get into some of the camps in the AFC, specifically AFC South. But I appreciate you, sir. Yeah, thank you, man, and uh, thanks for the compliment, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Mike Patton, always good to have him on on the Bastard News Radio Show on the Bastard News Radio Network, WCLM, WCLM, Big Mind Entertainment, and IBM TV. Greetings and great day, everyone. 
I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. To the show, the Bass News Radio Show. Don't forget if you missed any part of the broadcast, you can go to the website if you're listening live right there now. Uh, the Bass News Airtime.pro, the Bass News Airtime.pro, and you can see my mug on uh, Amazon on Fire Stick or Roku uh, on Big Mind Entertainment. You download that app be able to see the Best News Radio Show there at Big Mind Entertainment on that app. You download it, and then you'll see the Best News Radio Show. My next guest wanted to bring him in. Had to give him a little Tupac. You know, he, he's a, a, a fan of him and Biggie, so I wanted to, to start his interview uh, with some Tupac, some Dear Mama there. Uh, of course, he is the owner of uh, Nasus Media and play-by-play voice of UMass Lowell basketball, hopefully getting their season going later in the fall. He is Nick Anastas. And, Nick, always a pleasure to have you on, sir. L.A., how are you? Good, man. Good. we got to get you back on the TV side uh, soon so we can show your, your smiling face up there as well. Um, so I, I just wanted to put a wrap. I'm sure you heard the previous guest that, Put a wrap on uh, the Bucks, and you know they're winning. Um, this is a team that you even said, "Listen, Brooklyn had them down, but don't count them out. Atlanta had them, had a shot, don't count them out. They get to the finals, they're down two zero again, and they will their way thanks to uh, you know Giannis and his play." to win four straight and win their first title since 1971. We're talking Kareem and Dandridge and and uh, the Big O and, and all of those folks back then. Uh, and you you think about the City Moncriefs and the Bob Lanier's and all those guys, and Paul Pierce that come through Milwaukee, they finally get another title. What does it say about Giannis? Does he get that that – proverbial monkey off of his back winning this title and, and what do you see with them moving forward next year yeah I definitely think he's solidified his place amongst in history at this point the only thing missing was the title he delivered the title he's got the two regular season MVPs is Far as I'm concerned, he could retire tomorrow and, and he'd be in the in the Hall of Fame, no problem. Um, you know, especially considering what he did in the finals uh, to close it out with fifty plus uh, fifty points, 
He was over 40 uh, three or four times in the series. And you can see that as the series went on, the action centered around Giannis, really on, on both ends of the floor, especially on offense. Um, you know, Chris Middleton is, is probably going to be forgotten, unfortunately, you know, over the course of history for what he did in this series. I mean, he easily, uh, in my opinion, could have been the MVP as well, if not for the eye-popping numbers that Giannis put up. But as as far as the Bucks as a whole, um, you know, they surprised me. I thought they were dead in the water down 2-0 to Phoenix. I, I really did. I thought the way the Suns were getting up and down the floor, that, that the series was, was pretty much wrapped up. But, you know, the, the home court advantage was back in that pivotal game three that kept them alive. And, you know, you got to give credit where, where credit is due. This is a team that was down – a couple of times in this postseason 2-0 and, uh, and got the job done. So they understood that it was them against the world. I think they adopted that mentality at the beginning of the postseason. They had been the number one seed the, the last two years going into this season, had come up short. Um, and you and I have talked before that, you know, over the course of league history, a lot of these good champions have to lose first. They have to learn how to lose. And I think Milwaukee did that. You know, they, they got battle-tested in the process. They got mentally tougher in the process. And as a result, again, adopted that, that us-against-the-world mentality that can carry teams a long way in professional sports. The Stars lined up in the finals. They had the best player on the floor. And it showed. So, you know, Milwaukee, again, congratulations to the city. They've, they've been starved not just on the hardwood, but, but really across the board um, for a winner. Hardworking city. They love their sports. It's, it's good to see. And as far as Giannis, again, personally, that's, that's it. You know, he's, he's now a Hall of Famer uh, moving forward. And, you know, he'll, he'll be able – if he stays healthy to build on this legacy, he may become one of the all-time greats before it's all said and done. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, what, seven years or whatever he's been in the league or whatever, he started off as a defensive guy, developed his game and put some weight on. As You know, he's a slim gym when he came in, and he's doing his thing. Two, two uh, questions for you. Um, where do you rank that game six performance in finals history it wasn't game seven we like i mentioned in on the show earlier this wasn't willis reed limping on the field and on the court of madison square garden against the lakers at that that game seven they won there um or you know jordan's 45 magic destroyed my sixers playing all these positions 42 and that that closing game what do you rank them and then the, the flip side of it uh is Chris Paul and Giannis were stories. Can Giannis bring the title back? Can Chris Paul finally, not only he's there now, can he get it? Did the NBA uh, ratings aside uh, really get the benefits of these small markets playing in these dramatic type ways? I think it was a win amongst the hardcore fan base. I mean, true fans of the NBA were going to tune in no matter what. True fans were going to find significance in those storylines that you mentioned. 
um, I'm not sure if it moved the needle outside of, of those those markets of Phoenix and Milwaukee and that built-in hardcore fan base that, that I just mentioned. Um, you know, Giannis, for, for all intents and purposes, um, I don't think he's there yet as a household name. He's a household name for sure amongst NBA circles. But if you ask non-NBA fans who, you know, who he is, I'm not sure that that he's recognizable as a Kevin Durant, certainly not a LeBron James or even a Chris Paul. But so so you mentioned so you mentioned that in terms of what I asked about, you know, great performances in final history that they wouldn't think of him, they would think of LeBron, Kevin Durant, Jordan, those type type of people. I think for right now, yes. I think what in game six is going to go a long way for the new generation of fans. I can tell you that there's a lot of nine, ten-year-old kids that may or may not have been really introduced to that, that finals intensity. And I'm not talking about last year with the bubble, which was a dud by any metric. Um, you know, again, Giannis is is still young, still in his prime, still building his brand along with building his, his legacy. He's still building his brand as well, and I think the NBA is attached to that to a certain degree, at least they were in this postseason. So, yeah, I think the storylines were there for, for the basketball fans, how well that translated uh, beyond the hardcore following is, is I think yet to be seen. Mm, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I just think that, you know, in terms of what I've seen, I'm, you know, older than you, but, but you, you understand, you, you know, the history of the game, those, those classic games that this one for me, not the fans, but for me, this was that performance, the way he just kind of just took over and said, listen, we, we, we're closing this deal. You know, that was, that's top five for me. That's definitely top five. I mean, you know, Jordan against Utah, he dropped 45. And like I said, to me, the ultimate, and probably because I'm a Sixer fan, the Magic just destroyed us 42-20. and 20. Um, right. And that, that Lakers championship, I think that, that's the greatest I've ever seen in, uh, uh, in NBA history. We're talking with Nick Anastas here on the Bachelor News Radio Show. Nick Nelson Cruz goes from the Twins to Tampa. Tampa's a a game back of of your Red Sox, and you know when you look at the standings, and we'll get to the Yankees a, a little bit um, shortly. Uh, how big of a deal is this for Tampa picking up the 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 steady Freddie that Minnesota had with Nelson Cruz? I think it's a good move for them in the short term, obviously. Uh, first of all, Nelson Cruz is really amazing what he's been able to do. Exactly. Uh, when you, I mean, I thought this guy was ready to fall off, you know, five or six years ago. And, you know, he, he's 30. What is he, 40, 41, still doing it at a high Still level? doing it. Right. I, I mean, that, that number one, is, is the most remarkable thing. Number two uh, yeah, Tampa, I think, needed a bat. They needed a big bat. They needed a veteran. Um, they don't typically make those kind of moves, right, um, at midseason. You don't typically see them as buyers, at least not when it comes to, to big-name um, trade pieces. 
So they, they broke, I think, a little bit of their own mold with this one. I think it signifies that, that they're certainly, uh, you know, taking this, this thing seriously, this, this, this run as we head into the, uh, the second half. So I think that also puts a little pressure on everyone else in the division. Um, but, yeah, I think on paper it makes a lot of sense, and it, and it again, should help them in the short term, for sure. Uh, how um, confident when you look at the Red Sox? I know sales has looked really impressive in, in the minors and rehabbing and hadn't give, given up a run last I checked. Uh, how how um, you know confident are they in his his return and, and being a part of a, a strong part of this rotation? Well, best case scenario, I, I think he becomes the difference maker the difference maker if they can get him back to where he was two or three years ago. Um, you know, it, it's not an automatic guarantee that just because healthy is going to come in and, you know, resume his all-star form is his form that the Sox need him to be. I mean, obviously that's, that's the big question. What, what Chris sale are you going to get? Is he fully healthy? Is he pitching those indicators as positive as they, as they've been are still, you know, far from, from telltale. Um, so we're not going to know until he gets back up to the majors. But, again, if if things go well, he's finally healthy for the first time in a while. He's, he's found that, that, that all-star form that, that he hadn't had in a couple of seasons. Then that's the difference. Uh, I mean, you add an ace to, frankly, a rotation that's already overachieved to this point. I, I think, again, that may be the difference. The other side of the coin is if he comes back, he's not quite ready, or he's just too old at this point and done. Too injured, too old. I mean, we're going to find out one way or the other where he is. Um, and I think, you know, possibly the Sox may sink or swing, depending on how he performs. Now, again, they've maximized that rotation. They've maximized that pitching staff, every time it seems like they're written off, uh, they find a way to answer the bell. So they may be fine with or without Chris Sale. But, but again, if he comes back, if he's good, or at least pretty good, then that bodes really well, I think, for Boston. You know, you used the word overachieve and, you know, um, you know maximize, uh, it, 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 which leads me to this pitching staff going above and beyond is what you're saying um, from top to bottom, uh, bullpen, starters, everything. Can they sustain this the rest of the year? You look at Boston and the White Sox have the best record and Houston's only a half game behind. It's assuming that they those stay on the trend, you know, they, they're definitely going to need the pitching going into some hostile environments, you know, if they do slump or, or, or struggle and Tampa takes them. So how long, if they can, period, this pitching staff continue to overachieve and, and maximize, if you will, uh, throughout the season? Well, let's see. We're at, what, the two-thirds point pretty much? Um, you know, this was the main concern at the beginning of the season. It was the main concern uh, even before that. You know, before training camp, in the off season, they didn't look like they had much on paper. There were a lot of unknowns. There were a lot of pre-existing injuries, as we've talked about Chris Sale being just one of them. 
Um, obviously, optimism was 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 not that high amongst the fan base, and they come out, they have a good April, and it's chalked up. Oh, you know, good start, good April. You know, a lot of things can happen in April. We'll see what happens in May when the dust settles. And there they are in May. You know, again, not not putting up the the best numbers across the board, but good enough to to keep them at the top of the division and to go with that that explosive offense. Uh, then, you know, again, here we are in June. They're still hanging around. They're still doing their thing. Now we're almost at the end of July, and they're still in the driver's seat. So at, at some point you can recognize, you know, what they've been able to do and gain confidence from that. I mean, they're, they're still performing ahead of schedule in a lot of ways here, and, and, and we're heading down the stretch. So um, I, I think the fan base gets more and more confident by the day. The fact that the Yankees have kind of imploded um, has lifted spirits, <laughs> for sure, as well. Um, but but we'll see. I still think it's a four-horse race with a long way to go. I, I mean, I don't think any Red Sox fan will tell you we're out of the woods uh, by any stretch. But, again, the, the further this thing goes, I think the, the more confident across the board the Red Sox nation becomes. Yeah, I think Tampa is sort of like the Lightning, and uh, they're they've been there before. They're solid. They're well run. Um, so you know you don't count the Rays out. But the, this Yankee Red Sox thing, first of all, I've said this to you years ago, maybe even most recent, that you know America doesn't always outside of Boston, the area, and Yankee, you know New York area, and me a Yankee fan of. America doesn't want to always see Yankee Red Sox on TV. Having said that, um, the rivalry, you have to, as someone famously said, you have to actually win to be a part of the rivalry. Yankees haven't done that. So are the Yankees that bad or the Red Sox that good as it relates to when they play each other? Is it just about the matchups? What is it with this, this season where the Red Sox are just, you know, the Yankees are there, you know what? Okay. I don't know. I'm sure you can you can give a much more detailed analysis on what the Yankees' problem is than I can. Um, I know from a fan, you know, rivalry perspective that, that it doesn't really matter what the records are when they get together. Um, you know, that becomes front and center. You know, that that story, if it's a weekend series, whatever it is, they're coming to Fenway, they're going out of the Bronx, that becomes the leading story on every news report, you know, every sports talk station. Um, so, so I think that rivalry carries a lot of weight. It really does. Major League Baseball knows it. Um, there is a lot of resentment, frankly, outside of New York and outside of Boston across the rest of the They don't like the Red Sox. They don't like the Yankees. Um, a lot of cases it's tied to the lack of salary cap. Some of these smaller cities, smaller fan bases feel like their teams don't have a shot. You know, the Yankees may not make the playoffs. The Red Sox may not make the playoffs. They're going to have a built-in advantage based on the manage, uh, management and the ownership the next season. They're going to quote-unquote reload with a $200 million-plus payroll. So I think that feeds into the resentment more than anything else, um, you know, again, outside of Boston and New York. 
But as far as the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry goes, it's always going to be healthy. That's always going to drive ratings, at least up here. And it's always going to rile up both fan bases. But you know what, to to that point, just to follow up on what you said, though, Nick, the fact is that some of these owners in small markets don't reinvest into their teams. Boston does. The Yankees have notoriously have. Even in Steinbrenner, when he blew bad money on Steve Balboni's and people of that nature, he put the money that he made with the brand back into it. So, you know, I get the whole small market, big market. The Yankees, they just, you know, the Red Sox, they just kind of reload. But some of these small market Knicks, you know, some of these owners don't take the money and invest. They got the Kansas City Royal fans are always going to come to their games, the Giants or whatever. You know, some of these smaller markets that, you know, the Arizona Diamondbacks or whatever, um, they're, they're not investing into the team players and 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 scouts and everything else like some of the big market teams. That needs to be addressed as well and said. Yeah, that's always been the argument for any Red Sox Yankee fan, and and there is some merit to it, for sure. The bottom line is uh, some of these, you know, the Milwaukee's, the the Tampa Bay's of the world, they're not not bringing in the same – they don't have the same revenue streams as the Yankees or the Red Sox do. They don't have the the mega TV deals. You know, they don't have the merchandise that's selling across the world. You know, you go to the streets of Japan or China – they're buying Yankee gear without even the knowledge that it's a baseball team they're buying. They just think it's another American brand like Nike or, or whatever. They see the NY logo and, and, and don't see it beyond there. That's the kind of power that the Yankee brand has. has. Um, again, bigger, bigger market, bigger perk. Sure, we're talking about billionaire owners, big or small market. You could put them to task if you want, but – uh, you know, I, I don't think there's any question that, that the bigger market teams have an advantage just based on their size, based on the strength of the brand, and based on the multiple revenue streams that they have coming in every year. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, that, I, I don't want to, you know, want people to think that I'm going away from that. You know, the Dallas Cowboys of the world and the Yankees, right. like you said, some people wear it just because everybody knows who they are and they just wear the jersey or buy the jersey or whatever the case may be. Um, so you're right. Um, final baseball question real quick. When you look outside of the AL East, and we know the White Sox, who I've been finally, thank you for making me look good. I've been saying the White Sox will be good for two years now. Houston's going to be Houston. They're still very good. And then you look out um, in the NL and the Mets holding on and Milwaukee's been playing lights out and, and so have the Dodgers. They've, they haven't um, lost a step. Nobody expected that. Who do you think are at this point a third in or so uh, would be contenders or pretenders? You think that might fade off? I think Houston, at least in the American League, is, is the class of the league. I would say that, at least on paper. Right. Um, you know, that lineup is scary loaded. The rotation is proven. The bullpen is excellent. Um, they went on the road. They went at home. They won before, to your point. Uh, I, I would I would probably start the conversation in the AL on, on who has the most complete team with Houston. 
and, and, and probably the, with the Dodgers on the other side as well. Uh, again, same ingredients. Um, talented lineup, proven pitching, proven pen, proven experience. They've been there. They've done that. They continue uh, to do it. So, so I think the favorites, at least right now, um, in both leagues would be Houston and the Dodgers in, in a match from, uh, from two years ago. Was it two or three? No, four years ago. Sorry, 2017 they met in the World Series. That would be my extremely early uh, World Series prediction. Yeah. I mean, you can't really argue with those franchises, what they've done. Houston, uh, um, especially, uh, I mean, you know, the one team, though, the one team that uh, beat them early in their run uh, on their way to their own title was Boston. So, you know, we'll see if that plays out. Uh, switching gears quickly to the the Patriot, Patriots and 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 Gilmore, uh, uh, Stephen Gilmore with his his uh, he's placed on the PUP list, uh, reporting the camp and and trying to get some things worked out. What's the latest from camp with him? And will anything get done um, with them? moving forward, because I, I, I agree with you. I think that defensively, overall, but especially defensively, I think they, they made some nice nice moves, and a team defensively that looked very old last year can get young very quick. Yeah, um, you know, the front seven particularly, I think, is, is, is revamped got an injection of youth and free agency. The pass rush should be better. And that, in turn, of course, helps out the back end. Um, I think probably the deepest unit, offense or defense, either side of the ball, is probably that second. So if Gilmore is forced to miss time, I think they've got the depth to to, to cover that up, Um, you know, depending on how long he's out or, or the extent of, the injury or however it turns out. Um, not quite sure, to be honest with you, how much this has to do with his health versus what this is about in terms of the renegotiating process. Well, that's Sometimes what I meant. What I what I meant was that, you know, he, he's hurt, but they, they he wants his contract renegotiated. He's only 30. So, I mean, he's not, you know, he's kind of, he's a tweener. He's not, you know, in his 20s, but he's not 38 or 35 or anything like that. So certainly he wants to, to, to get more money. Um, so it's interesting to see how the Patriots, I guess I'm asking, how they're going to handle him. I think they'll pay him in the end. Um, I think he's earned it. I think he's still good enough. Uh, you know, is he a tad overrated, frankly? I think that argument can be made. Um, but the bottom line is they're better with him on the field, no question about it. And I know they're deep at the secondary, et cetera, but, but they're better when he's on the field because uh, he can shadow, he can play, you know, he can play bump and run. He's big enough, physical enough to come up and jam, uh, still quick enough, you know, to recover. So he, he's still a top five uh, corner. He wants to be paid like a top two corner. And that, I think, is where, you know, the difference comes in. I, I think in the end, uh, we've seen this before where, you know, Bill tolerates this kind of thing in July, 
But come August, you know, the Ducks start to align. <laughs> they start getting in a row one way or the other pretty quick. So I think this thing comes to some kind of a resolution in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, and, and then we begin to find out how hurt or how healthy, you know, he really is once I think that contract settles uh, everybody can begin to move forward and, and, and get ready. But you you think, final question, just to follow up on that, when you look at the their division alone, the Buffalo, um, the Jets, and even in the case of the Ducks, they want to get vertical. They want to get the ball down and fill. You look at what Tennessee did and and, and bringing in uh, people, the Colts, uh, uh, the Sean Watson in Houston, and then the AFC North, uh, there again, you have Cleveland and Cincinnati. You need corners in AFC. You definitely need some depth in the secondary. So it, do you think on your professional, personal opinion that if they pay him, they're overpaying him, or they're doing what he, they need to do to make sure they have enough weapons in the secondary to fight in the AFC? Probably a little bit of both, because you're going to have to overpay him to keep him. So, you know, there was some criticism floated his way last year, and some of that was warranted. You know, again, 30 for a corner is not a spring chicken to your point. So right. I think in a lot of ways, this is probably his last deal, is I think the way he, he sees it. This is his last opportunity to, to maximize whatever leverage he has. Um, so in the end, I think the Patriots are going to have to grin and bear it. And if they overpay a little bit, they overpay a little bit. You know, they had money all off season to play with. They had an eye on this situation for sure. They have the money. Um, it, it's just a question of can we get the hardball stuff out of the way, come up with a number where everybody's happy and move forward. I, I think they pay them and worry about it down the line. You, this this right. AFC is is pass happy the the NFL, but it's certainly in the in the uh, that conference is definitely pass happy. Sign him, lock him in, give him his money. Like you said, from his standpoint personally, this is probably his big his last big contract, and he either stays or moves around or whatever the case may be. But I give him the money for now, and and get some lockdown people and build your offense there. Nick, as always, my friend, I appreciate you as always, man. You be well. We'll talk with you next week, sir. Sounds good, LA. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Nick. Nick Anastas, of course, Anastas Media, UMass Lowell basketball play-by-play voice there. If you missed any part of our broadcast, make sure, as you're listening now, uh, go to the Bachelor News, the Airtime Not Pro, the Bachelor with a T, B-A-T-C-H-E-L-O-R, uh, news that airtime not pro to listen to the show airs at 10 a.m. 3 p.m. Um, during the week and 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. on Sundays as well. That show and other shows there at our website. Follow us on Pad Nation on Facebook, Pad Nation number two at Twitter, LA Bachelor, and, and Instagram, uh, Spotify, and all other iTunes. Tune in other places you can check us out online for the show for all of us here on this broadcast we thank you for listening to the bachelor news radio show on wcom of course in chapel hill the bachelor news that airtime not pro 
Big Mind Entertainment, IBM TV, WCOM, Chapel Hill, WCLM, in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you.